Taking you inside all things Palm Springs. This is the Palm Springs Pod. Here's your host, Jason Page. Welcome to the premiere of the Palm Springs Pod. I'm Jason Page. I'm so excited to bring this new show to people here in Palm Springs and beyond. Maybe you're one that travels here or often as a snowbird. You could also be one of the roughly 45,000 people that live here year-round. Either way, this weekly show is for you. Sometimes we'll chat with local leaders. Other weeks, it could be a celebrity performing here. And with the greater Palm Springs sports scene growing, I hear an athlete or coach too, given uh, my own background. All right. When I decided to launch something here locally, I knew that I wanted um, this week's guest to be one of the first people I spoke with. Uh, He's Andrew Mills. He's the chief of police here in Palm Springs. And now has the distinction of being the first guy on the Palm Springs pod. Oh, what have you gotten yourself into? Jason, I have no idea, but I can't wait to find out. All right. Now, full disclosure, I met Chief Mills uh, one day at the downtown Starbucks uh, about several months ago. He was there with a few of his officers and uh, one of his communications folks. And I was struck by just how approachable you were. Um, so I, I decided if I ever had the chance to do something locally here in the media, that you were one of the first people I'd want to talk to. So I, I appreciate you um, coming on. What? Tell me what made Palm Springs the right move for you when you took the position nearly two years ago. Well, it's kind of like when you're getting married. Um, you know, you you date somebody for a short period of time, and then you wind up getting married. At least that's how we did it. And you're lucky. You had no idea what you're getting yourself into. And uh, but for Kathy and I, it's lasted 43 years and uh, we couldn't be happier here in Palm Springs. Well, we knew we liked about the city is a couple of things. One is it's a really popular area for people to come and visit. Uh, two, there's a lot of professionals here who take this town seriously and are willing to invest in 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 the town and through themselves to make sure that this is the most wonderful place to live. And then third, uh, important for me, was that I saw a lot of professionals in the department who I believed uh, I would want to work with that were smart, capable people. And that encouraged me to say, you know what, maybe it's time to uh, get back down to Southern California. And uh, of course, Southern California is the best place in the world, bar none. It's such a different world from Northern California, though. I mean, it, it really is same state, but it might as well be a different state altogether. Might be, might as well be a different planet. Um, this, you know, Southern California, we love the culture, uh, the people, the laid back vibe. Um, you know, the, just Southern California is is truly a unique place. Yeah, it really is. When you when you came in here and kind of saw the landscape, what were say the two or three biggest goals? that you set um, for for at least the first, I don't know, three to five years? Did you have a plan? Was it a, a three-year plan, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan? And, and sort of where are you in terms of trying to implement the things you want to do? Yeah, well, thanks for asking that. I think there's two different sides to that coin. One is the plan from the community side, which is we went out to the community, seven different meetings, asked the community what they saw as the top priorities, gave us great feedback. We were able to determine based on that the strategic plan to move forward in the area of crime fighting and and uh, improving the quality of life here in Palm Springs. On that side, there's clearly three priorities. One was homelessness, 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 and homelessness. <laughs> um, you know, people, uh, while they're truly compassionate towards people who are less fortunate, because let's be honest, but by the grace of God, there goes the rest of us. 
but at the same time, enough's enough. And people have really had it kind of up to their eyeballs and the behaviors associated with some of the homeless. And unfortunately, you know, we see three types of homeless. We see those who want and need help, they get it. Those who are so addicted or mentally ill that they don't know what they need or want and um, they need help. And then the third is just the criminal element who don't want to do anything that society wants of them and want to live how they choose. And that becomes debilitating for our community if you have enough of them. So we're working on all three of those. Second priority was gun violence. And fortunately, we've seen an enormous downtick in gun violence this last year. Uh, we've seized over 250 guns from people that could not legally possess them. I think that has had a good effect. And the third are traffic problems. Um, just as recently as a month ago, we had that high-speed collision on um, on, uh, Gina, on Gina Autry, where a guy slammed the back of a small car and, and killed three people. So for a city our size, we have far too many fatal collisions. So those are the top three on that side. On the other side is the department side. I had two, two priorities. One is to really love our people. Uh, I think they were in a position where there's, you know, morale took a hit because of COVID and uh, some leadership issues as well as um, uh, civil unrest. So this really needed a lot of attention and love. And then the second piece was um, staffing was down significantly uh, and we had 22 people injured. So we've changed that. We're almost fully staffed. We have a few openings. And then uh, we have uh, uh, the people that were injured are back to work. So we're heading the right direction in both areas. Let me let me tackle a few of these that you discussed. One, the gun issue obviously is is prevalent all across the country. Getting guns off the streets has, has Palm Springs, and I don't know the answer to this. In, in doing my research before the show, I didn't get to this one. Has Palm Springs ever done anything like a buyback program? And and how do you as a as a police chief feel about those? Well, I've done them in the past. Uh, you spend a lot of money getting guns off the street, and that could have a, a positive effect. The research shows that it has not really had an effect on gun violence. Um, you wind up getting grandpa's shotgun. Now, if somebody breaks into the house and gets grandpa's shotgun, um, it could wind up on the street and that could be a problem. But what we find are some of the higher end guns people aren't really turning in. Uh, so I'm not opposed to it by any stretch of the imagination. It just becomes an issue of, is that where you want to invest your resources? Yeah. And, and you know, look, I mean, California has some of the strictest gun laws in the country. Um, you know, some would argue whether or not they are effective from the seat in which you sit, not asking you to make policy, not asking you to be a politician, but being a politician sometimes is part of your job. Right. You How do you gauge where we are? gun culture, gun legislature, and the like? Well, I'm actually writing an op-ed piece on that as we speak uh, to put out. But let me say this. Um, you gunning for my job? Do you want a podcast? Exactly, I know you want it. A podcast next? I'll host it. Let's go. Uh, America's culture is steeped in history of gun possession and gun ownership. I don't ever see that changing in our country. And I don't think that it should. I think that there has to be reasonable limits put on what you one can possess and in, under what circumstances. Plus, the United States government doesn't have the capability nor the will to disarm its, its, its the public. So let's take that off the table. Now let's work with what is pragmatic and reasonable. And what to me is pragmatic and reasonable is if you're a convicted felon, you cannot legally possess a firearm by law. You, ha you have used a firearm in the past to commit a crime. 
You should never have a firearm again. And if you do, there has to be a steep price paid. Right now, we're arresting people for possession of a firearm as a felon, and they are not getting any time. So that does not become a deterrent uh, for that. Um, that becomes a encouragement uh, to commit, continue to commit those crimes. So let's focus on what we can do first and then worry about the kind of higher end, higher end stuff later. Second piece of that is there's legislation called the Gun Violence Restraining Order. We use it here. And that is if you've threatened to kill people and you possess firearms, we're going to take your guns. Simple as that. And uh, and then it's a five-year timeout that you cannot possess those guns. And if you then you can uh, petition the court to get your guns back after five years. We just recently used that to take guns from a guy who was, quote, pedophile hunting in Ruth Hardy Park. Yes. And, um, you know, that was just a dog whistle. He's hunting for gay men. And uh, so we figured out who he was through social media. Uh, we got a search warrant uh, or a gun violence restraining order, called him in and took his guns. And uh, and I think that makes our community that much safer. And uh, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, the issue of homelessness, the balance of empathy versus, like you said, having to keep the streets clean, keep them clear keep them safe. I get the, the angst and I go to the dog park a couple of times a week. And it's, it's almost like the, it's the local watering hole without the alcohol. And, and people love to sit there and kibitz and gossip and talk about different things going on around the city. But the homelessness issue is always one of the, the top two or three things that is on people's mind. And there is a, a sense of impatience amongst those people. And I've been here, I've been here almost five years now. And in those five years, I've watched a few stragglers walking around the streets turn into groups and camps and the like. It's obviously not only a policing issue, as you and I have discussed off the air. Uh, it is obviously an issue that that goes into far more than that political will, places to put these people. Um, you know, the climate here certainly appeals to a lot of homeless people because it is so nice eight or nine months a year. It's not rainy. Try and try and give me a sense for how you have to work with, again, the political angle of this, working with with city leaders to try and come up with a solution that isn't simply shifting these people from town to town to municipality to municipality. And then it all just comes back in a big circle and they wind up back here anyway. Yeah, you know, that's really tough. I mean, uh, the Supreme Court issued a ruling, uh, Martin, Ber uh, Martin versus Boise, that said that we cannot arrest people for uh, unlawful camping unless there's enough bed space to house the majority of the people. Um, most cities have zero bed space. We've got more in Palm Springs than other than Indio than all the surrounding uh, communities. So you build it, oftentimes they will come. So, and now we're building a bigger space, but I wanna ask a pretty tough question. Where's Palm Desert, La Quinta, Indian Wells, um, Cat City? I mean, desert, high, uh, desert hot, um, whatever that town yeah, is. Yeah, DHS. DHS. Um, uh, you know, where are they at? Why aren't they building an 80-bed facility? We're spending a lot of time, money, and effort onto this thing and because we take it seriously here in town. Now, having said that, I'm fully prepared that once those beds are in place, to do everything within our power to make sure that the people are availing themselves of the opportunity provided to them. If they don't, there will be a consequence. Now, it's not a very robust consequence. If I can't get people in jail for illegal possession of guns, 
I'm not going to get them in jail for camping. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that we should put people in jail for illegal camping, but there has to be a consequence of some kind. So what we have chosen to do here in the city is three things. One, count, make sure we understand the, the context of the problem. A point in time count once every two years does not do us a whole lot of good, in my opinion. Two, we we um, we give them resources. We give them flyers on how they can get a hold of resources to help themselves. But they have to choose to do that. I can't do that. Our guys are not social workers. Um, our, we're cops. Why are the police even handling this at all? If it's a health problem, why isn't the fire department doing it? If it's a social work issue, why isn't the county doing it? I think we're probably the least equipped to do this, but we're the only ones available 24 hours a day. Isn't it something, though, where, where it's basically an issue that falls between policing and fire and health to the point where you have to ask the question, does there almost need to be a different department, a newly formed department? And I know everybody's going to say, oh, great, bigger government, more, you know, more, more people on the government payroll. But doesn't there almost need to be a government solution or at least some government aid in this where there is social workers that are going on these calls with police officers so the police can handle the safety side of it and you have social workers that are handling the the homelessness aspect or the unhoused aspect of it yeah I, first of all i agree with you um there there should be somebody designated to do this but even when i was in santa cruz i had a guy that came up to me they all knew who i was and all the homeless folks but, you know, our just the context of the problem, we have about 300 homeless here in town. Santa Cruz is 1,400 uh, for a same size city. Think of the impact. But a guy came up to me and said, hey, chief, I'm I'm a heroin addict, I'm a fentanyl addict. I'm ready to go. I need I need rehabilitation. I'm ready to go right now. Pulled out my phone, said, I've got a guy ready to go right now. And the answer I got from the county was have them make an appointment in eight weeks. Oh, Jesus. That guy will either be dead in eight weeks because you certainly won't be in the same frame of reference to be able to do that. So we do need that. Um, 30 years ago, San Diego started a program called a Psychiatric Emergency Response Team. So for 30 years, they've had shrinks in the field with their patrol officers, working with the homeless, working with the mentally ill, working to de-escalate situations. Um. We still have none out here in our area. Um, that's a county-funded position. Um, the county needs to, has stepped up in many ways. I want to thank them for that, especially Greg Rodriguez. Uh, thank them for how they've stepped up and helped with building the navigation center. But we also need real-time people out in the field who are going to walk down to the washes, talk to the people who are drug-addicted and mentally ill. That is not present. That is not taking place. And until it does... We're not we're going to continue to have problems. Like many cities, a lot of major cities here, especially in California, you're hearing the talk of um, theft, robbery taking place within a lot of the, the big box stores, Walgreens, Rite Aid, CVS, Target, um, these types of places. And a lot of it is the homeless and un unhoused community. Is that as big an issue here when you look when you dig into the statistics? And figure out, you know, the the rate of crime and the rate of theft and robbery and things like that. How much of it would you say is mostly pointed towards the unhoused and those that are that are just simply desperate and will do anything and know that the 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 punishment for those things just isn't that isn't severe enough that it's worth the risk? Well, that is part of the issue, uh, Jason, uh, very much is that they don't view this as a risky proposition. Stealing something 
of a value less than $900, you're not going to go to jail. You're going to get a ticket. And they know that. And so then it turns into a warrant because they're not going to appear on it. Then they go to jail, get another psychic right back out. So there literally is no uh, repercussions for that. We just applied for and got a $4.6 million grant, $4.56 million grant to help reduce um, retail theft in our city. So we've got a bunch of stuff planned uh, to work with our businesses, get them the video camera systems they need, make them obvious and visible, uh, put in license plate readers, uh, do undercover operations, uh, give also an opportunity for people to rehab some of the money set aside to help people. So uh, we're doing what we can, but I, I don't know that it's necessarily homeless, but it's certainly drug addicted. And many of the homeless are drug addicted. Um, if you got a habit, you got to feed hundred bucks a day. Hmm. You're gonna still, you're gonna steal stuff. I mean, there's no way you can survive and then continue a, a habit of hundred dollars a day. Uh, you mentioned license plate readers, and I know it's something that's important to you. How can you make civil liberties advocates? And let's be honest, Palm Springs, pretty liberal town. How can you make civil liberties advocates comfortable with the idea that these readers? And this technology won't be abused or potentially violate somebody's constitutional rights, because that is an issue. So, you know, it's interesting. I talked to a person who's pretty, you know, high ranking person in the Democratic Party um, was very concerned about their license plate readers. And mm -hmm. she and I had a uh, had a very short conversation, not a decent conversation about this. And she said, I'm very concerned that, you know, you're going to be looking at who's in the cars with people and then using that information to, you know, do other things. Absolutely. And so it's a misunderstanding of what the license plate readers do. Um, first of all, we take a picture of the back of the car, not the front of the car. And the back of the car, these are stationary uh, license plate readers. And what it does is it records the license plate and then just the trunk area of the car. So we get a make of the car in the, in the license plate. Unless somebody's looking in the, like we, we were kids, getting the back window and look out backwards before there were car seats. Uh, we don't know who's in the car. And to be honest, we don't care. And for those who have a little bit of self-inflated personal self-esteem of the police are going to look to see who you're with, we don't care. We're too busy. Um, but there have been abuses in the past. I want to recognize that, that, you know, government can get carried away. And so I think that the checks and balances are good. The other thing is we have very tight policy and there's state law backing it up. It cannot be used for immigration. It cannot be used for um, women seeking uh, health care. And it cannot be used for people getting transgender, uh, you know, or uh, care also. That's against the law and um, already. And so we are not in a position where we're even getting close to that. Thirdly, we cannot send the data out of state uh, without a express permission from me. And so I can be held accountable. So if uh, Houston PD calls up and says, hey, we're working a triple homicide, the car's California license plate. Can you run this for us? We think they might be back out there. Obviously, I'm going to do that. Um, now, we just give them that piece of data. What we don't do is give them access to our database. So we can give them singular pieces of data. Uh, the last point I want to make on this is uh, for those that in-state use it, uh, they have to sign a memorandum of understanding that they agree to abide by the laws and the contracts and the principles that we believe in here in our city. And so I think it's pretty robust. There are some camera systems out there that sell to third-party vendors. This system does not do that. 
and we want to make sure that they don't give it to anybody else. We control all the data, not them. And that was important to me. And then lastly, it's a heck of a lot cheaper than the other systems um, because we're renting it. We don't own it. So, um, You mentioned traffic collisions. I want to go back to that for one second. And this is anecdotal. This is me walking around and I'm on Palm Canyon at 930 at night with my dog, you know, on, on a relatively empty street on a, on a fairly quiet night. And I see cars racing up and down there. And I, I continually ask myself this question. All you would need is one police officer at, at, at Tokwitz or Takeets and, and, and Palm Canyon, and you would catch so many speeders that are racing down this street. How big of a problem is, is streetcar racing? You know, whether it's Palm Canyon or Indian Canyon, is it something you get a lot of complaints about? Because it feels like to me, tra- it, I, I, I see, and, and this is a larger issue, not just California, I see less state troopers pulling people over. I feel like I see less police officers making traffic stops. Is that my imagination or is that true? Is it, are we actually seeing less traffic stops? Um, that's a good question. We're seeing about the same amount here. However, nationwide, it is a problem. Let me tell you why. I have two things. One, after George Floyd and the whole discussion about uh, racial profiling, uh, a lot of cops have decided, have said to themselves, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Um, and so they back, they've backed off. Now, fortunately, I believe our folks have continued to press the pedal. Um, however, um, now there is state law in the, uh, in the offing that says that uh, to prohibit the police from making traffic stops on minor offenses. Um, there's two problems with that. You're sending a clear signal to your uniformed law enforcement officers saying, we don't want you stopping people. They will do what we ask them to do. And so that becomes very dangerous. The second thing on that is a lot of times we use traffic stops to get to a bigger issue. Like, for instance, if we know that Jason Page is carrying an AK-47 in his car, uh, and this happens all the time, uh, we get information, we're going to have to use probable cause to stop that vehicle. So what we're going to do is look for a license plate light that's out or a, a blinker that's not working or bald tires or cracked windshield. I mean, there's 20,000 things we can stop you for. Stop you, then it becomes our job to try to get that gun out of the car in a safe way. So this is a, in my opinion, bad law that the communities speak out against. Hmm. Last thing is, um, it's not your imagination that people are speeding. During COVID, I saw a, uh, you know, talked to one of the CHP commanders. They stopped writing tickets under 95. They were getting so many people over 100 that they stopped writing tickets uh, under a very high speed, very unsafe speed. Many people think that they're Mario Andretti. They're not. They cannot drive as well as they think. And in our city, we have these very wide streets with very distant signals and uh, people get high speeds and drive like idiots. I don't know how how else to describe it. We can't do speed. We can't do speed cameras here. Nope, that's uh, that's being studied by the state right now. In fact, uh, Lisa Middleton, Councilmember Middleton, applied for the first speed cameras, and uh, they gave it to Long Beach instead. Long Beach probably punches a little bit heavier than we do. So, um, uh, but she's very interested in getting those here to uh, to get people to slow down. We have a traffic division of four motor officers, and they write hundreds of tickets, and um, and uh, and. Patrol writes a lot of tickets as well, but 
uh, to get a radar gun out there. We also have an officer traffic safety grant where we go to the hotspot locations uh, for traffic collisions and then do enforcement at those locations for traffic light violations and whatnot. But uh, it's it's a significant issue. Uh, something we hear about in a lot of minority communities is representation, that the officers don't look like the people they're representing. Palm Springs is, you know, 40 to 50 percent LGBTQ plus um, in terms of the, the the full-time residents and the people that live here, let alone the people that that come to visit. I just had a friend come in from out of town, was openly gay, and um, was having the time of his life for a few days. How important is it to you to have a department that is representative of the people it's protecting and serving? And how difficult is it? Because it's not like you can look at somebody and understand that they're black or Hispanic or Asian or something to that effect. And you can't ask people when you're hiring them if they're what their sexual orientation is. So how difficult of a balancing act is it to have officers that understand the community they're serving and protecting? that 40 to 50 percent, you know, population that is LGBTQ plus. But also being able to to get those people into the department just because of the challenges, you know, revolving around the HR perspective of it. Well, it's a great question, Jason. A lot to unpack there. Uh, First of all, we are not, I don't believe, uh, 40 to 50 percent LGBTQ. And the numbers in Palm Springs might even be higher. Um, I don't think anybody knows for sure, just for the reasons you mentioned, how, you know, how large the population is, but it is substantial. I think nobody can be here and say it's not substantial. Um, we have a lot of officers who are LGBTQ that don't feel comfortable being out right now. Right, You have one. I think you have one that's out, right? Oh, so- we have more. We have more than that that are okay. out. Uh, but one that's very visibly out. Right. And um, in a very high profile in a very high profile way. And um, and I'm very proud of um, of Pierce Law uh, uh, for all that he's doing for our department and for the community. He truly gets it. Others just don't feel comfortable at this point, whether it's the culture of policing or the culture of their families or where they're at in their life. I don't know, but that's okay. Um, I want to support and reaffirm them. Also, Uh, we are actively recruiting people from the LGBTQ community. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, you know, local people just recommended a kid to us that we're going to put through the academy. Hopefully he's in the background stages of being hired. So I would strongly encourage anybody that has a friend or a member of the public that they know of who's interested in policing. We are actively recruiting LGBTQ people. I would love for us to be representative in that area of our community. Um, but there's also other demographics we need to be cognizant of. Uh, African-American, Hispanic, which I think we're probably over that number here, Asian community, women, um, you know, elderly. So we got one of those guys. Um, And and so we'll, uh, you know, we certainly want to, you know, do what we can to represent our community. We had just got, we're getting one of our cars wrapped within the LGBTQ pride flag Oh, that's great. And we're also looking at uh, getting patches made uh, with the LGBTQ symbols on it for um, Pride Month. And uh, so we're in the process of trying to get that done. I don't know if we're going to be get able to get it done in time. But uh, so in the future, we can keep changing those and using them to support LGBTQ um, mission. I, I ask that question. And the reason I ask it is, again, 
in my conversations with people down on Arena Street, whether it's at the dog park, wherever I may be, I ask that question because sometimes the the community here, the LGBTQ plus community, feels like its voice isn't heard when it comes to issues surrounding things like, you know, um, date assaults, whether it's somebody that meets somebody on a, a, a dating app or it's somebody meeting somebody on Arena Street and being roofied and being injected with drugs. I mean, and these things happen. They have happened. They've been chronicled. And sometimes I've run into people who feel like they bring that issue to the police and the police say, well, I mean, come on, man, you you, you hooked up with somebody on a dating app or, the, or that the, the sympathy or the empathy is lacking or that the issue isn't understood the way it needs to be um, in the policing community. Is there a disconnect there? You know, Jason, I don't think so that there is a disconnect, but let me just address, because this has been a topic here. That sure. Uh, and I've been corrected. It's not a dating app. It's a hookup app. Mm-hmm. And, um, very big difference in the minds of the people that I spoke with. Hold on. Hold on. I'm going to I'm gonna say this. If, if it's Grindr that we're talking about here, I bring this up only because I met my husband, okay, 12, uh, 12 years ago. We actually met on Grindr. And it was a grinder date that, and we wound up married. So, I mean, I get the idea that it's a hookup app, that people will say it's a hookup app. But there are some people that are looking for dates. It's not just right. hooking up, right? Well, I would agree. In fact, my argument to the people I was talking to is it says dating app right on it. Right. Um, but regardless of the right. semantics, whether it's that or sniffies or, you know, whatever the case may be, um, you know, I think that uh, in some ways we didn't do a good enough job investigating that initially. However, let me also say that some of the cases that we got were just complete, um, were very difficult to prosecute. And the reason for that is when you go and hook up with somebody and you say there's going to be this level of violence or there's going to be this level of sexual interaction. And then you take willingly take drugs and then pay for the drugs uh, from that person. It it really makes the case difficult to prosecute. Now, it doesn't make it right. In fact, it's still wrong. You know, and no means no and stop means stop. Um, But I think that there's some things that we can do to help try to prevent the level of victimization that we've seen. And we put actually put a a piece together. Um, I've got it here at my desk someplace that we're, um, we've been working on with community members to uh, tell people how they can prevent being victimized on uh, these hookup apps and um, or to reduce their chances. But regardless, recognize it's all about managing risk. And if you go out with somebody that you know has previously victimized people, or you go out with the same person again, even though you were victimized by that person on a hookup app, that just increases your risk. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just increases your risk. If you choose, you know, and we used to tell people this who are complaining about getting robbed um, when they're visiting prostitutes when I was in other cities. If you hook up with a prostitute at three in the morning in a desolate area and you know her pimp's close, what can go wrong here? Um, so let's think about that and try to do things to prevent the victimization. I want to reduce the harm associated with many of these things. So well, we are working with some of the community. We already have a relationship with the LGBTQ Center. We have a relationship. We have a, a LGBTQ advisory board. 
Uh, we are at all the main events uh, where the LGBTQ community is because it's so important in the city. Uh, and we want to be allies of the LGBTQ community in every in every facet and part of it. Kathy and I go to a lot of events, uh, especially where we are, you know, learning and understanding and 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 becoming more um, empathetic to the plight of many people who are in the LGBTQ community. We don't always get it right, but we're trying. And I respect the fact that you can acknowledge that you don't always get it right. It's not it's not perfect. Uh, policing isn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, a couple of quick hitters before I, before I let you go. What's the one thing that keeps Chief Andrew Mills awake at night more than any other issue that that you face as as somebody leading a police department? What's that one thing? Give you three things real quick. Okay. One is this current situation in Israel with with Hamas terrorizing people. We know for a fact that there are sleeper cells in the United States that there are people who empathize with uh, with Hamas or Hezbollah or uh, ISIS and so forth, at what point does one of them just cut loose and kill people? Um, that keeps me awake. Two is we have a lot of far-right extremists in our county, in our state, in our nation uh, who are anti-LGBTQ. Uh, and do we have the resources to infiltrate that at a level without violating the First Amendment uh, to make sure that we're aware when threats are prevalent and uh, and and things are ticking. People think in their minds think that the policing has this great intelligence network. We don't. And um, but um, I'm purchasing software to help us search the dark web to see if we can ferret out some of that. And then the third thing is uh, the young men and women who go out every single night, strap on a vest and a gun and go out there and stop cars. Uh, and uh, they are at risk. And, uh, and I get regularly get people injured and assaulted and so forth. Um, I worry about it uh, because it is so violent. I think the governor has been taken off in some ways for people feeling like they can ambush the police. So um, uh, we don't get that many throughout the nation in any typical year, uh, but a few is too many. In this last year, I mean, RSO lost two deputies within a very short period of time. And that really affects the psyche of policing um, everywhere. How good is the cooperation between your, your neighboring departments when it comes to the issues like you were talking about? I actually had it written down about talking about the issue of Hamas and, and sleeper cells and, and terror and things like that. How is the cooperation amongst your, um, you know, your, those that are around you? Well, you know, it's, it's, that's an interesting question. Um, in my prior life in San Diego, I was in charge of criminal intelligence and counterterrorism for the city of San Diego. It's a big job. You have Al-Shabaab members living in San Diego. You had Anwar al-Awlaki, who was uh, one, was kind of Osama bin Laden's equivalent oh. in San Diego at a mosque uh, there. You have um, uh, literally bomb throwers living in the metropolitan area of every major city. So how do you abate that? So every quarter, all the intelligence commanders from all the major cities in our country get together in a private location and discuss the current threat picture in each of those cities. There's not a common database for all of them to search and share intelligence together. Uh, LAPD, myself, and Las Vegas Metro started to do that, and other federal agencies wanted to quash it. So I wrote an article on it. It's called A Three-Legged Race. Uh, you can Google it and find it, but it's um, the lack of prioritization 
uh, for local agencies. When I when I got in the unit, we were uh, we were chasing La Cosa Nostra in San Diego, and uh, I said, I went to the guys, how many goombas do we have? I'm thinking, you know, 20, 30 guys that are, you know, like, you know, John Gotti. We had two. And one was an 80 year old guy with a cane, you know, betting on the ponies at Del Mar racetrack. And we had spent over a million dollars on that investigation with the, with the feds. I said, are you freaking kidding me? So we had to come up with a domain understanding of what our threat domains were, what can cause the most harm either economically or lives in, a, in the, in the city and then chase those. And that's what we did. And that's what the art is about. So I'll kind of give you a picture. Of her. Yeah, uh, I get it. All right, let's get it. Let's end it on a light note. Uh, we do something on, on this show uh, that I like to do. It's called the fast five. I love that football, by the way. Uh, we call it the fast five, five questions, 60 seconds uh, that I, that I get to ask you and you have to give me an answer on them. Okay. Uh-oh. There we Uh-oh. go. No, it's not. It, it, it'll be painless. I promise. All right. Ready? We're yep. going to start the clock. And here we go. If you have a Spotify playlist, the song that people would most be surprised to see on it. (laughs) Bruno Mars. (laughs) Okay. Uh, If you weren't in policing, you would be doing what? Oh, boy. Uh, Playing in the NFL. Did you play football growing up? Yeah, but never at that level. (laughs) It's what you you dream of, right? Or the CIA, I don't know. I call this the death row question. You have one meal left to enjoy. What is it? A good T-bone steak. It's good. I'm a carnivore. <laughs> I'm a meat eater too, man. It's a it's an investment. Uh, you've been married for over 40 years. The most enduring trait of a successful marriage is? For men, keeping your mouth shut. Yeah, I'm not good at that one. That <laughs> mean, means mine won't last much longer. Uh, yeah. the one place, last one, the one place you've never traveled to that you have to see before you're too old to go there. I'd like to go to um, Tokyo. That's where I'm supposed to go for our honeymoon and we never went. Well, see, now it's time. <laughs> I've traveled to Asia, but I have I have not uh, I have not done Tokyo yet. Yeah. Uh, Palm Springs Police Chief Andrew Mills. This was fun. Uh, I appreciate your uh, your candor and and uh, your honesty in, in, in this conversation where we, we tackled some fun things and some not so fun things. And uh, I hope we get to do it again. I appreciate it. So I have a question for you. Uh-oh. Okay. I've, not seen, I've not seen you on the pickleball court. Oh, God. I play tennis. I, I have not given See, you the idea of, of pickleball yet. Do you play pickleball? I do um, almost every day. So come out to Demuth because you've got that tennis swing. You'll probably kill it. Yeah. I'd love to play with you sometimes. You play, do you play golf? No. How do you live in Palm Springs and not play golf? Guard the hole. Now we've got a sport. (laughs) Chief Mills, appreciate it. I'll see you at Starbucks one of these days. All right, right, brother. Have a good day, Jason. And that's going to do it for this edition of the Palm Springs Pod. Thanks again to my guest, Palm Springs Police Chief Andrew Mills. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, you can do so now on all your favorite podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Until next time, I'm Jason Page. Thanks for checking out the Palm Springs pod. We're all things Palm Springs, mostly. I'll see you next time.